morning, church. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Father, I pray with thanksgiving in my heart that I can call you Father, that we can call you Father because we are your adopted children, your sons and daughters, not just now but for all eternity. We thank you that we are heirs with Christ and we are destined for glory, to be with him on a new heavens and a new earth, a place in which righteousness dwells and only righteousness. Lord, we long for that day. And Lord, I pray that you would help me to preach like this is going to be my last time in the pulpit. Lord, help me to preach uh, in the power of your Holy Spirit, um, dependent on you. I pray, Lord, that you would help me to decrease, that you might increase. I pray, Lord, that as we hear this word, that your sheep would hear your voice and that they would be fed well and led well by you. Lord Jesus, you are the chief shepherd And even as we await your appearing, Lord, we pray that you would, by your spirit, be guiding your people through your word. Bring them into green pastures and beside still waters. Restore souls today, Lord. And lead us all on paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Lord, that's my longing, for your name to be glorified, for your name to be hallowed in our gathering today. So give us hearts to come under your word now and to receive it for what it truly is, the word of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you, uh, I already know the answer to this question. Have you ever been provoked? (laughs) You know, when someone's doing something to you, kind of over and over, kind of poking at you and poking at you and poking at you. Maybe one spouse is doing it right now. Like, you know, just poking, poking. And there's something rising up in you, like, I'm going to do something about this, Right? It makes me think of one of my early childhood memories of uh, my stepdad just stopping the car, getting out to go tend to a huge snapping turtle. So he grabs a big stick and he goes about it, poking and provoking, poking and provoking, poking and provoking. And you see the this huge snappers, his head kind of going back to the shell, coming out a little bit, going back, coming out a little bit. And sure enough, he had had enough. He was provoked to the max. Snaps, grabs that stick. Such a powerful chomp. Uh, I remember, whoa, <laughs> as a kid. And uh, provoking. We get to look at one of arguably the most famous of the Apostle Paul's sermons today. And I will have you know that this sermon was occasioned, like what brought it about was something that provoked Paul. He was provoked by something, and that's what led to arguably his most famous sermon. Something greatly distressed him, and he's going to do something about it. Before I tell you what provoked him and what he's going to do about it, I want us to get a little tour of Athens, okay? Because that's where we're at in our text. Uh, they travel um, from Thessalonica to Berea, and now they're, they've traveled far, far south to Athens, and so... I want you to imagine with me, with your mind's eye, uh, a little tour in Athens. The Apostle Paul actually is the one on the tour, okay? You got to imagine kind of the ancient equivalent to like one of those uh, trolley cars that you get tours of when you're sightseeing in a city. So imagine Paul, he's kind of on an equivalent, uh, ancient equivalent of that, 
going through Athens with a couple handfuls of other people, and he's getting a tour of Athens. He's taking in the sights, the smells, the culture, all of it. And so he gets to see the capital and cultural center of Greece. It's a happening place. And people's first impression was, this is a place of exquisite artistic beauty and magnificent architecture. They're looking at these buildings, these columns, and they're just, their jaws are on the floor as they're looking across the city. And then the tour guide tells them that they're going to take a turn and they're going to be shown the Agora. This is the social hot spot in the center of town. It's kind of like an open air market, if you will. And they learned that uh, people gather there daily That's where they're going to get their latest news. Uh, That's where they're going to shop for things they need and maybe don't need. Uh, This is where they're going to visit with other people. And the tour guide is also pointing out, see those finely dressed fellas over there? Those are philosophers. They're exchanging and testing their new and interesting ideas. They're stimulating each other's intellects. You could see their brains growing if you look really close as we drive by. And look over there, under these massively impressive colonnades, there's more philosophers teaching their students, instructing them. And then the tour guide, with kind of a proud gesture, points in a direction. And before Paul can even turn his head, he hears this, ooh, ah, from those who are on the tour with him. It's the Parthenon, the massive temple towering overhead, casting its dark shadow on every soul that's below. Then they come to one of the most important sites they're going to see on the tour, the Areopagus. That's what it is there. Uh, Sorry, I didn't have enough time to read it. It's the Areopagus, and it's also known as Mars Hill. And they learned on this tour, a very educated tour guide, uh, that this term came to refer to not just the location, the place they were going, but the council that met there. So it's the Areopagus, and the court of the Areopagus, this elite group that met in this most prominent of places in Athens. This is, in a sense, a city council on steroids. Because the council of the Areopagus, they had authority over not just civil affairs, but also religious life in Athens. They had authority over matters of religion and morality and not just the civil life. So at this point, almost everybody was enjoying themselves. They're at ease. They are thoroughly entertained by the tour. They're enjoying taking selfies and are eager to proudly post them on Facebook. Now I said almost everybody was enjoying themselves. There was one who is deeply troubled by the tour. For Athens was filled with idols. Statues of gods and goddesses everywhere. Little shrines housed in magnificent temples, littered throughout public areas, enshrined in prominent places, and most likely in private homes. No one even noticed the darkness that they were under. But Paul felt it in his bones. Every single statue that he looked at, every little figurine that he beheld was like a poke, a poke, a poke, provoking him 
provoking him and provoking him until finally he felt like he had to do something about it. For Paul, it was a lot like they fell back in Isaiah's day. In Isaiah 2, 8, it says, Their land was filled with idols. They broke down, um, they bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. Or the description that is used to describe a righteous lot uh, living in Sodom is actually a really fitting description for what the Apostle Paul is feeling right now. This is 2 Peter 2.8. It says, For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds in what he saw and heard. So what was it that provoked Paul? What was the problem? The city was filled with idols, right? Look at verse 16. Now when Paul was waiting for them at Athens... His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was filled with idols. Now, we got to get the context here. It's not like there was no idolatry in Berea or in Thessalonica, right? But here in Athens, the idolatry is so in Paul's face, it's like having the filth flung at you as one walks down the strip in Vegas, right? This is what it's like. It's just so in his face. There's no way away from it. And Paul himself has a proper fear of God, okay, as he goes through this place. He has an appropriate fear of God, and so he's rightly sensitive to what's happening here. Paul's burden, more than anything else, is that the true God is not being worshipped in Athens, And he's deeply provoked by it. It's not entertaining to him. He's grieved, he's burdened, he's provoked. And so I want to ask you this question. Is idolatry unique to Athens? Berea? Thessalonica? No. I mean, idolatry is the issue of every age, right? Since Genesis 3, This has been what people have been up to, whether it's trying to build a tower up to the sky to make a name for themselves, right? Or building a golden calf. Like people have been up to this for century upon century upon century. In idolatry, let's remind ourselves of a basic definition. It's it's valuing anything equal to or above God, right? So in those days, it took very concrete form in the, in the forms of these statues, right, that they would bow down to, they'd bring sacrifices to, that they would serve these idols that are set up in these temples and sometimes very impressive temples. <clears throat> so every day has idolatry, right? Every culture has its idolatry. So try to think of a few for our culture, right? Try to get some in your mind for our culture. One of the ones that comes to mind is think of alcohol in our culture. And it's not just that people like to drink a lot of it. It's that they love to be associated with it. It's like part of the identity. Got to have the Bud Light sticker, right? To be able to, you know, show, I don't know what exactly, but it's a way of finding, someone, some people need to think hard about that. You know, like, this defines me. Okay, uh, Right? But it's a form of identity. It's something that we're putting, someone can put stock in. Or drugs, right? It's that pick-me-up, that hit that's going to get me through, this is what I'm turning to. Or take money and possessions. 
right? Whether it's the clothes that we wear or whether it is the house we have to have or the land we have to buy, right? Or the car we have to drive. These different things can easily become idols in our lives. So we're asking, well, what, what are our idols? The idols of our day. Think of this one, food. People boast in their gluttony. Like it's a badge of honor, right? It's idolatry to have an unhealthy relationship to food. All of us should like a good steak. That's my feeling. But, but to get to the point of gluttony where it becomes a god to us, you know, it's idle. Or take comfort and ease. Things getting in the way of comfort and ease. Or flip side of it, work. How work can become a god. Just a thing that just absolutely drives us. Or flip it back the other way. Leisure, <laughs> right? Leisure can become an idol. If I don't get it in the form that I want it, when I want it, get out of my way. It's become a god. Sex. Or a substitute, pornography. These things, like a drug, gotta have a hit. Entertainment. iPhone different forms of uh, technology, these different things that become so important. Our, our culture is just filled with a love affair with these things and more. I'm not being exhaustive, right? And so my question is, is for you is, what provokes you? Like what provokes you? What's kind of poking at you when you're in this culture that we live in? Or are you desensitized? Are you one enjoying the tour with everybody else, just kind of enjoying being entertained? When if your heart was sensitized to the things of God, you would actually be grieved by, by these things. You could ask yourself this question too. Another way to get at the heart issue here is, what provokes you the most about that coworker of yours or that family member? that person that's annoying you in your sphere of influence, what provokes you the most in their lives? Is it that they are not worshiping the true God? That's what provoked Paul. The grief, the burden over that, or is it they're just annoying you because they're in the way of some kind of an idol in your own life? These are the kind of things we want to ask ourselves and you might be saying, you know, if I'm honest, I am actually pretty desensitized right now. I'm not provoked much by the things around me or even the things that I'm doing. What should I do? Well, one of the things I would say is the reason we get desensitized and we're not provoked often is because we're often partaking of the same things. So if we, our hearts are filled with idols, it shouldn't be that strange to us that things around us, you know, with idolatry all around us, it's not going to bother us. And we lack the moral integrity to really say anything about it, right? And so part of, part of um, the solution is going to be recognizing the idolatry in our own hearts. And the Apostle Paul kind of encouraging us to stop participating in the things that actually should provoke us. Like, don't participate in the very things that should be provoking us. 
and grieving us. Paul says these words in 1 Corinthians 15, 34. He says, wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. And I say this to your shame. Isn't that penetrating? Paul's saying you as Christians have enough idolatry in your own life that you are not repenting of, that there's others that are lacking the knowledge of God. Because when you're desensitized by your own idolatry, you're not able to actually help people see the darkness that they're under. We have quite the model here in the Apostle Paul. What are you bothered by most? Are you bothered that God is not worshipped? And what are you going to do about it? When you're provoked by the idolatry all around you, what are you going to do about it? Even for your own heart, what are you going to do about it? So for Paul, he was poked and poked and poked because this city is filled with idols. What's he going to do about it? I love this. Just get this connection. It's so clear there between verses 16 and 17. The city's filled with idols, and he's provoked by that. So what's he going to do about it? He's going to fill the city with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's going to be his aim. And that's what we're going to see um, as we unpack the rest of the passage. Let's look at that connection there. Now, when Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So... He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. So pause there for a second. Paul, so what's Paul going to do about it? He's going to try to fill the city with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Single-handedly if he has to, right? So where does he start? He starts walking through the doors that are open. He goes to the synagogue. We saw that last week, right? The low-hanging fruit. Go to the Jews that actually have a biblical worldview, right? And in anticipation of the Christ and try to help connect the dots for them. He starts there, but he doesn't stay there in Athens. It kind of skips over it quickly in the text. He goes into the public square. He goes into the marketplace, and he's trying to engage in conversations. So he's going wherever doors are open to share the gospel, And uh, so he's going to engage with Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. These are the two most prominent and popular philosophies of the day. He's going to engage with them. And uh, this is going to be some of their take on him. Picking up in verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? (laughs) Uh, Thank you. Okay, they call him a babbler, like literally a seed picker. Like someone who picks up bits and pieces of useless information and then tries to show off with it. Like kind of a know-it-all, presents himself as a know-it-all. So they're just belittling him, kind of a term they could use for like a scrap collector or someone who peddles kind of random assortment of goods, just random stuff. So in other words, this guy is spouting off his mouth, running his mouth, and he doesn't know what he's talking about. Welcome to Athens, (laughs) you babbler. So... So this is what some of them say, right? What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. Sharp guy. Uh, Because he was preaching Jesus um, and the resurrection. And and so this this is beautiful here. It says, and they took him and brought him, remember this spot on the tour, to the Areopagus? 
right? That really prominent location where this uh, city council on steroids would meet, right? Uh, this really elite group that would make a lot of the civil decisions and also religious decisions for Athens. And uh, so they're saying, they brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? And then Luke kind of gives this, this narration here. He goes, for, or sorry, he says, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. And then Luke gives this detail. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend, all, would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. And I kind of love this. There's just an iron here. It's like, oh, they're going to get something new, all right. They're going to they're gonna get more than they bargained for. But they're saying, we want you to come to the area because we want, we want to test and judge this new idea that, that is coming to our ears, you babbler. So come, and, uh, but just don't miss this point here, right? This application for us, even in our evangelism. You go where you can, where the, dar- the doors are open, right? You go there until God brings you to a place where only he can bring you, right? So you start going through the natural doors, all right? Uh, synagogue, well-hanging fruit, marketplace, can talk to a lot of people there. Just trying to have, be in places where I can have conversations, right? But I love this, is that as he's obedient to just do that, then God opens a massive door. I doubt he came to Athens going, they're probably going to ask me to speak at the Areopagus. But here he is, just faithfully having conversations with any day per, and, you know, everyday people on the streets. Some philosophers are engaging him. But then God opens a much bigger door because God loves to open doors for his gospel. And this happens here. And so I think for us, it's an encouragement that we need to take one step of obedience at a time and trust God to take care of the rest. Just to step through the doors that he's giving us and pray that he'll open more doors and watch him open doors that will uh, surprise us at times. And here is Paul now in the Areopagus. Verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And so, remember, Paul was taking in the sights on this tour. So he's seeing all over Athens, and he's taking note of something, and he just kind of grabbed onto this, to the unknown God. That's it. That's good. I'm going to make use of that, right? So to the unknown God, this altar to the unknown God, Paul just grabs onto it. And uh, so this is the Athenians' way It's kind of like, think of it like a drip pan altar, right? Uh, A catch-all shrine, right? They want to make sure that no God is left behind. This is the concern for them. No God could be left behind. They don't want any of them to be left out of worship. They don't want to offend any one of them by forgetting them. And so what's the best way to do it? Give a catch-all shrine, right? Like to the unknown God and any ones that we might be missing out on, Right? But Paul is going to make use of this. Paul is going to grab onto that. And notice Paul is trying to build a bridge here. You notice that? He's grabbing on something. He's giving, he's saying in a general way, I can tell you're very religious. I can tell these things matter a lot to you. I've been observing your culture, been observing what you value. 
And I noticed that on one of the shrines, it says to the unknown God. And so they remember, they're saying, tell us more. It seems like he's a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching the resurrection. So they're like, tell us more. So what I want to do, Paul's going to build this bridge and he's going to say, like, what is unknown to you is well known to me. And I want to make it known to everyone in Athens and to everyone that will listen to me. (laughs) And so this idea of building a bridge, I want to use this as an analogy for really the rest of our time because I think it fits really well with what Paul's actually just trying to do here. You know, he's meeting them right where they're at. You're going to see him even willing to quote some of their own philosophers and poets as a way of just trying to help them understand some foundational truths um, about the gospel. And so he's, Paul's going to carefully build a bridge, all right? And so think about what goes into bridge building, okay? I actually researched this, thinking about this, because I think it fits perfect. So uh, I hope this will be a good mental framework for you as, you as you walk through the rest of the text with me. But in a general way, step one, inspect the site, right? The site you're going to build. You got to know what you're building on. You got to know what this ground is made out of, right? You got to know what it's going to take to lay good footings. And that goes to steps two and three. You got to set the foundations and install the supports, okay? Then step four, then you add the superstructure, okay? Then step five, test it, okay? Test the structure. See if it holds. Is it built with integrity, Okay, so I want to I walk through these kind of stages of bridge building. I think you'll see, see how this fits well um, in the text. So he's going he's gonna to build this bridge, and, and he's going to start building right where they're at, right? Again, he's going to be willing to, to contextualize the gospel to try to make it understandable to them, but he's going to contextualize without compromise. He's not going to compromise anything in terms of the truth of God's word or the essentials of the gospel. And so he's going to start building right where they're at, and he knows that he's got to build a bridge long enough and strong enough to get these people from where they're at in this place of pagan idolatry, right, to, the, to glory, to where Christ is. So to get them on that bridge, he's got to lay some foundations. So he starts with, you could say, step one, the site inspection. Check, right? He's already got the tour of Athens, right? He knows what he's building on. He knows how deep he's going to have to dig in order to lay footings, right? So you could say step one of building the bridge, check. How about steps two and three? Set the foundation and install the supports. So he's going to try to give some foundational truths that the superstructure of the gospel is going to be built on, okay? There's some truth, some kind of mental framework that has to go in place to help them get their footings to really appreciate, to really understand the good news as it comes. When the superstructure goes up, what's going to tie the whole thing together? You know, to illustrate what Paul's doing here, you, we can appreciate what has to happen in a missionary context, especially in, in an unreached people group, okay? The only difference is Paul doesn't have to learn the language here. He's already fluent in it, which really helps him. But for example, when we send out Daniel and Sam to an unreached people group, they're going to have to learn the language of the people, right? And they're going to have to help uh, explain the gospel to them. So they're going to have to start by creating some mental footings, right? Some ports, 
giving some things that people can fix their minds on so that they can even grasp the good news because it just feels like it's floating in air, right? So they want to give some real concrete footings in people's minds. And so missionaries will go to a place, they'll do the painstaking labor of love to learn their native tongue so that they can un- and understand their worldview so that they can speak the gospel effectively and fluently in that, in that culture. And then they'll slowly start to teach through the Bible and lay some of these foundations, lay down some of these supports and their deep desire is to get to the point where they're putting that superstructure on, right? And testing the thing, right? That's what they're longing to be able to do. And Paul, in a sense, is, having to, is, is taking this approach. Notice the difference between this and what we saw last week in the synagogue. Last week in the synagogue, Paul could assume all kinds of stuff, Right? Because they had the whole Old Testament in common. They believed in the authority of Scripture. And, so for, and they believed that a Messiah was coming. So for Paul, he could argue from a text they share in common and, um, and help them see what they're not seeing that's there, right? But now Paul is taking a different approach. Because he doesn't have that shared worldview here. So he's got to build more, kind of take a broader approach to how he's going to do it. There's a lot to learn from him. This is, in a sense, learn a lot from like people that just don't have any Bible background at all. This is, this is a way to think about creating some of these foundations and supports for their, for their minds. And so he's going to build this bridge and he's got to start. He did the site instruction. Now he's going to lay these footings. And, and so look with me at verses 20, uh, verse 24 to start. The God, speaking, trying to make this unknown God known to them, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. And so you're going to notice what Paul's going to have to do is he's going to have to correct some things in their thinking and then assert the truth, capital T, what they need to know. And so what is he basically saying in verse 24? He's saying, God created everyone and everything and so he doesn't fit in temples, right? Like they're used to putting their little so-called gods in these temples, right? He's going, God made everything. The unknown God, the one I'm making known to you is the creator of heaven and earth. He made everything that is in heaven and on earth. The heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool. Like this is the God that we are talking about he doesn't fit in temples. Okay, that's the first thing he wants to get really clear in their minds. He's the creator of everyone and everything. But he's not just the creator, he's also the sustainer. Let's look at verse 25. Nor, so not only does he not live in temples made by man's hand, human hands, um, oh, sorry, temples made by man, nor, verse 25, is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So what's it saying in verse 25? Right? God sustains everyone and everything. And just like he doesn't fit in temples, he's not going to fit in your temples, he is not going to, uh, he doesn't need our service. Can people serve him? The true God? Yes. But not as though he needed something from them. Right? Everything that they would ever serve him with is something that's already come from his own hand, 
right? So Paul is just trying to fix that standard in him. So let's talk about temples. He doesn't fit in your temples. He's Lord of all. He transcends it all. Um, he is served, but not, not like he needs anything. This God is completely independent. He has life in himself. He's the giver of life, sustainer of life, okay? So another foundation fix. Now, right now, you might kind of roll your eyes and be like, yeah, we know these things. There's a lot of people in the world that don't. There's a lot of people in the world that don't. And there's a lot of people in your spheres of influence that don't think these ways. And they actually need this mental framework fixed in their minds. So we get to freshly get our minds and hearts around it. And then we look at verses 26 through 29, where we can see that he's going to try to tell them that God created and sustains man to seek and to find him, to worship him, not to reinvent him. Right? This is the thing that he's going to bring out. So start at verse, verse uh, 26, going through 29. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on, the, uh, uh, live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Again, he's quoting their poets, and he says, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Then he says, being then God's offspring, in a very general sense, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. So he's saying, the God who created and sustains everything created man to seek him and to find him, not to reinvent him, not to start creating stuff out of, out of things and saying, behold your God, right? Like the calf popping out of the furnace being like, behold your God, right? This is what they're doing. He's saying, uh, God's not like that. He's the creator, the sustainer of all things, and he's made you to worship him. You are made to worship the living God. Those kind of three pillars, you know, those three supports that are built up that the superstructure that's going to that's gonna hang on. So, but notice there that as he's building this bridge, he's willing to quote their poets to help them understand, to grab onto things that are normal to them in their culture to help make the point that he really wants to fix into their minds. This is a lot like what Paul said um, in 1 Corinthians 9.19 that we become all things to all people in order to win some. This is Paul winsomely contextualizing, you know, speaking their language without compromising God's language in his word. And so, step one, inspect the site, check. Step two and three, set the foundation, install the supports, okay? Create this mental framework to hang the superstructure on. Check. Step four, now add the superstructure. Add the superstructure of the gospel. Now that they have this in their minds, he is doing what he really came to do. He wants, he wants to put up the superstructure. This is what's going to tie the whole, things, the whole thing in. These are, uh, these are these cables that are going to run across the entire thing and give ultimately this thing its strength and power. And so he begins... Um, you could say, as he's engaging them and he's turning the corner, he begins by giving them a word of hope, which I think is really beautiful. 
He just got done saying God creates and sustains everything, right? He made heaven and earth. You could say heaven is his throne, earth is its footstool. So he is a transcendent God. Yes, he's transcendent, but he's also imminent. He's also near. I just love, I feel Paul's tenderness when he says this. He's actually not that far from each one of us. <laughs> what a beautiful thought. This transcendent God that you have spurned your entire life. He's not that far from you, actually. <laughs> That's a beautiful thought. He's not that far away. And he's like, I know that because he's drawing near through the preaching of the gospel right now. Right? He's drawing near. He sent me here to you. He's with me in power because he wants you to know him in reality. And so, Paul starts with that word of hope. You might be far from God, but he's not that far from you. He's drawn near to you. And then he says something that's kind of shocking. Think about his audience right now. Who's he talking to and where's he at? He's at the Areopagus, right? among this elite council, right? The ones with the big brains in their own eyes, right? These guys that know so much. And Paul says this, the times of ignorance God overlooked. What's he implying? <laughs> when you share the gospel, you cannot take away every bit of offense, and part of the offense here is you have lived in false worship. You have lived in ignorance. You've worshipped idols your whole life. You haven't been worshipping the true God. That's what's been provoking so much. But God is near. But God is near. And so he says, um, the time of ignorance is overlooked. So they're going, you calling us ignorant? Like, you're ignorant. We're not ignorant, Right? <laughs> Like, we, if you want to call us, call us anything but not ignorant, right? These elites in the Areopagus. Like, I mean, Paul is so bold, but it is just the reality, right? I mean, he's saying the time of ignorance God overlooked. What does he mean by that? Well, he's saying God for years didn't judge as quickly or as intensely as he could have. I mean, he could have just been snuffing out idol worshipers all the time, Right? But God has been patient, not wishing that any should perish, but, others should, but people should reach repentance. In other words, he's kept the door open so that people can see the truth, so people can walk across this bridge, right, into glory. So he's telling them the time of ignorance is done. He's bold to say it, but he's absolutely right. I mean, in Ephesians 4.18, he says this to the Ephesians, that we're not all that different than the, than the Athenians. He says, they are darkened in their understanding, speaking of those who are still lost, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance, and listen to this phrase, the ignorance that was in them due to their hardness of heart. So what Paul is saying, there is an internal ignorance that's really a hard-heartedness. We have hearts of stone left to ourselves before we know Christ. We have hearts of stone and God has to remove those hearts of stone and give us tender hearts toward him. This ignorance, this, this time of ignorance is done. God was merciful and not snuffing people out as quick as he could. He's giving you time here. The door is still open, or maybe to use a stick with analogy, the bridge is still open. The bridge is not closed down. 
Or 1 Peter 1.14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Like that's, we were. It's not flattering, but all of us, no matter how smart we might think ourselves to be, like all of us were in a state of profound ignorance. Ignorance of heart that could only be remedied by the message that Paul is bringing right here and that we have to bring to the world. And so he says, the time the times of ignorance, God overlooked. Oh, don't, don't miss the patience of God in that statement. The time of ignorance. God has been so patient. He's been so patient keeping this door open. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So we're building the superstructure now, okay? The supports are all in place. Now, this is what Paul really wants to say. This is what's going to hold everything together. The king commands everyone, everywhere, including right here in this noble place, right? At the Areopagus on Mars Hill, he's calling everyone, everywhere, including you guys in the robes, to repent, to turn from your sins, to Turn from your idols and to serve the living and the true God. This is what Paul, this is what Paul is preaching. And notice this here. This is good for us to just have in mind. This is, is this a mere invitation? Does it sound like a nice little invitation? Think about it. He, he now commands all people everywhere to repent. It's a matter of disobedience for people not to heed this message, not to recognize this bridge that is being constructed for their sake, for their souls, to walk across it. So he commands all people everywhere to turn from their idols, to serve the living and the true God, to truly repent. And then he gives this motivation because God, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world. I know this is Bible 101, but God has fixed a day. There is quite literally on God's calendar a day circled. Okay? When the bridge is going to close. Right? And people won't have time to get across that bridge anymore. A day is fixed in which he will judge the world. And he says that he's going to do it in accordance with righteousness, which means God is going to judge not according to our man-made standards any more than he's willing to be shrunk down to fit in a man-made temple, right? God is going to judge according to his own perfect righteousness of character and the standards that he set down in the word of God. So no one has to be surprised on the day what he's going to judge according to. But the fact is, is that a day has been fixed a judge has been appointed. There's an actual judge that God has handpicked to preside over uh, every case on that day. And that's his son, Jesus Christ, the one who died and was raised from the dead. So Paul is saying to them, what you say I preach as a foreign divinity, I'm telling you, this is what happened in reality. This is what happened in history. God has sent his son to live a perfect life to die a substitutionary death on the cross for sinners and idolaters like you. He rose from the dead and now I'm proclaiming him to you as the only way 
and the only name given under heaven by which men may be saved. So he's proclaiming this boldly and making quite clear what the standard is. He gives the assurance. Have you thought about that, about the resurrection? What do we learn from about the resurrection? I mean, the fact that God raised his son is evidence of who's going to be on the throne judging on that day. He's going to be the one to judge. I mean, we, we had our fighter verse last week, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. When Jesus came the first time, he didn't come to condemn the world. He came to save those who would put their trust in him. When he comes the second time, he is going to condemn those who do not trust in him, and he's going to rescue those who are eagerly waiting for him. Paul wants this message to get out. This is the message that God is bringing. This, and I just want to bring out here, this, this last piece, especially about the resurrection, is such a deep stumbling block for these philosophers. The resurrection of the body, what are you talking about? I thought this is something we're supposed to escape, you know? Like, Paul is putting out there, he is just uncompromising. He doesn't care how strange it sounds to their ears because he believes that if he preaches this message, God's going to accompany it. God's going to stand by it, and it's going to have power. And frankly, I don't care how strange it would sound to any ears in here this morning. Like, this is the reality. God has raised his son. And so notice Paul. He's building bridges, but without compromising. He's not going to build with shoddy materials. He's not going to hear back from these people that need a bridge built and let them give feedback like, you know, basically, uh, hey, can you just cut the resurrection thing? Let's just drop that, and then we'll just call it a bridge. No, you drop that, you fall into eternal hell, right? So Paul is going to build this bridge with integrity. He's going to meet them where he's at, but he's not going to compromise on what must be said and what actually constitutes the good news. He's not going to cut corners to cut the cost on what pagans want. He's going to build the bridge, starting with where they're at, with uncompromising integrity. And think about it. How do they respond? Okay? How do they respond? Start in verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Do you remember what we talked about last week? Kind of the main point of last week's sermon? Like, the gospel will be rejected and believed everywhere it goes, right? So no surprise here, some are mocking at the idea. That could be you this morning. Maybe mock at the idea of the resurrection. And it says, but others said, but we will hear you again on this. Now this is interesting. These are the open-minded type, okay? Not like the noble Bereans last week. They were open-minded in the sense that they wanted to figure out what the truth was. And they were going to want to hunt for the truth. They were going to give themselves to finding it no matter what the cost was, right? That's a noble-minded open-mindedness, right? Um, but the open-mindedness here is like, let me just imagine this, okay? God has sent people to build a bridge to get you out of a land that you could never get out of on your own, Okay? And they have put all the resource into this. He's put all the resource. He's donated everything to make this bridge construction possible. 
Then you have people. You know, this bridge has been going for a while. There's been people crossing it. It's been worse. And then there's some people standing at the base of the bridge, you know, as it closes on the last day. And they're going, I was not antagonistic. Like, I wasn't against it. Like, in fact, the people that were on the bridge telling me to get on the bridge were like, I had nothing against them. I thought they were good people. They believed what they wanted to believe. And I was, I was always gracious and kind to them. Like, I was open to you, Jesus. I was open to the idea of you. Do you know what Jesus is going to say on the last day? Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. I never knew you. The bridge is closed. He's commanding everyone everywhere to repent and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ before the bridge closes. He has done everything to make this bridge stand. But still, some will mock. Some will want to stay wish-washy. And I would say, if that's you today, you might be far from God, but God is not far from you. And he has brought you the best news in the world this morning. He's maybe even helped you get some clarity on some of the basic foundation truth that God created everything, that God sustains everything, that he made you to worship him. You're made for that. And now he's told you how he's going to make that possible, how he's going to change that heart of ignorant stone to a heart of vibrant worship. He's going to do it through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. This is the day to believe. Don't, because I can, I can guarantee you this. I can guarantee you that this bridge will hold. But I can't guarantee you how long it's going to stay open. On the basis of God's word, I can guarantee you, I bet my life on it, that this bridge will hold. I've walked across it myself. But I can't guarantee you how long it's going to stay open. And so, if you're in that spot where you're kind of thinking you're giving God a great, uh, like, like you're, you're being a very open-minded person, like, no, true open-mindedness would recognize Jesus Christ for who he is as the way and the truth and the life and the only way to God the Father. And it would look like obeying this command to repent of sins, to believe in Jesus and walk across this bridge in faith. It will hold you. And so... It had to be tested, right? That's the last part, right? We saw it was, the site was inspected. The, they set the foundations, installed the supports, the superstructures on there. The gospel's been laid out. Now to test it. So we saw that some are going to mock and some aren't quite willing to get on the bridge. But is that all of them? No, there's more. Look at verse 33. So Paul went out from their midst but some men joined him and believed. Among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Demarius, and others with them. And I just, I love, I love this, this last part of, of the text. You have, you have these women that are named. Like there's a number of people that believed the gospel at that end. Paul's going in knowing some are going to reject it, some are going to believe it. But he's going in boldly, contending for the gospel. But out of all the people, like these two names, Dionysus and Demarius, 
these two women, their names are there. Like Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is taking painstaking historical detail to make sure that these names are there. These are real people that walked across the bridge that day. The preaching didn't win over every soul, but it did win some. And two of the names are captured here. And thanks to Luke's painstaking detail, we know their names. But thanks to Jesus, the Savior, and Paul's willingness to preach to them, their names are written in the book of life. And these are two people that we're going to meet in heaven someday. How sweet will that be? Be like, I remember hearing this sermon, we were reading this text, hearing your name. Like, we're going to meet them, these women, someday. Because this bridge was built. And they, by grace, walked across it. Oh, how I long to be in the number and for every single hearer here to be in the number. We had two women there that are like, when it came time to test the bridge, they're like, I'll test it. And that's what faith does, right? You'll put your whole soul on it. Have you been on bridges that are a little scary? I remember when Karen, Daniel, and Sam and I were in San Diego. Remember that huge bridge? Like it went up so high. I remember going down. I'm not even gonna look down, right? <laughs> it was way up there, you know? Like you're trusting that thing's gonna hold, Right? And that's what it comes down to. You can't just confess it. Your life has to show that you actually believe this thing's going to hold. Are you leaning upon Jesus Christ? Are you leaning on to his word? Your life will give evidence that you're actually trusting him, trusting this bridge to hold you. And uh, one of the things we need to think about as we close is that even us, even, even as believers, we can do what the world does right? Like there's a lot of these little rivers in life and we try to build little bridges, right? Like, because we think, I got to have this in order to get through this, right? This is where idolatry comes in again, right? We, we look to our idols as little mini saviors, little bridges that are going to hold us through hard times, right? The things that are going to satisfy us, that it's going to bring us to greener pastures, right? The things that are going to really give us what we need. I just need one more hit of this, right? That, just to get me through, just to take the edge off. What do we run to? What do we escape to? And I want you to just see the sad, the sad aspect here is that a lot of Christians are standing on these little idolatrous bridges and then they're pointing at the big bridge and be like, you should go over there. And the world's going, why would I go over there? You're over here, right? And so we want to so lean on the Savior where we turn our, we, as our song said before we, the sermon, we cast down our idols, right? Burn our little bridges. Like we just need one big bridge. And we want to live on that bridge, confidently on that bridge. And that bridge will hold you. Like if you've been struggling with a certain form of idolatry, maybe you're convicted, maybe you're desensitized, confess your sin to the Lord. Repent and trust in Christ. This bridge still holds, Right? You didn't weaken the bridges foundations. You know, your knees just got wobbly and you have been uh, hiking away from the most beautiful scenery and the most beautiful scenic outlook, which is off of this bridge, the most spectacular of all bridges. And so we want to be careful from these escapes of reality. We want to, we want to stand on the big bridge and we want to call people across the big bridge. That's what we want to do as the people of God. And so... Um, see. That's all I got. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, I thank you for the grace that you have poured out on our lives. Lord, I know that we all take for granted what you have built in our minds and in our hearts. Lord, we know that there's souls living in darkness and idolatry right now. No clue about the creator of heaven and earth. No clue about the one who sustains all things. No clue that they were made to worship the one true God. What is unknown to them still needs to be made known to them. But yet, here we are, Lord. You've made yourself known to us. Lord, we thank you for building this bridge. We thank you for strong foundations and supports. We thank you, Lord, that you built it to meet us right where we are at and take us to where we're headed for eternity. I thank you that this gospel is strong enough and long enough to get us right where we need to be. Lord, I thank you that you have given us grace to see our wayward hearts, to see that inner ignorance and hardness of heart and to repent of our sins and to trust you enough to walk across that bridge, to trust that Christ will hold us, that his death and his resurrection is enough for us. Lord, we know we wouldn't have done that on our own. We wouldn't have done that unless you changed our hearts. So we praise you for your grace. We praise you for all that you did to build this bridge in our lives, to touch right where we are at and bring us to endless glory with Christ. But Lord, we are not satisfied with just us being able to be comforted by this bridge. Lord, we know that we're many, many still live under the shadows of the Parthenon, this, this temple and its idolatry that it houses. And so, Lord, I pray, God, that you would so work in the hearts of your people that we would cast down our idols. Give us clean hands. Give us pure hearts. Oh, God, let us cast down our idols. God, let us be a generation that seeks your face, O God of Jacob. O Lord, I pray that we wouldn't stand on little bridges and try to point people to the big bridge. Lord, I pray that we'd forsake our own idolatry so that we can have a winsome witness, that we can speak in a way and live in such a way that people really believe this bridge will hold them. Forgive us, Lord, for our idols. Give us clean hands. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness, O God. Purify your church that we might shine more brightly for you. And Lord, for those here that mock the idea of the gospel and the resurrection of Christ or are still just on the fence thinking they're open-minded perhaps or maybe even feeling just too unworthy to come, Lord, I pray that you would help them to see how patient you are and how, how merciful you are to let this bridge be open still. Give them grace. Open their eyes. Break down the ignorance of their hearts and give them a heart to trust you with a childlike faith to trust you, Lord. To turn from the things they've tried to find comfort in for so long and trust fully in Jesus Christ. Lord, we cry out to you for that miracle in hearts today. We thank you that you've done it in us and that you can do it in others. Lord, while this bridge is still open, I pray that we would, like Paul, boldly share the gospel, that we would try to build bridges, that we would start right 
where we are at in our spheres of influence. Sharing the gospel, trusting you to open other doors as you see fit. Lord, we plead with you for the effectiveness of the gospel. Lift our eyes, Lord. Help us to see that this is not about us. This life is not about us. It's about you. Convince the hearts of all your people, Lord, so that we with one voice and one heart and one soul can live to lift up Jesus Christ, that he might increase and that we might decrease and that we might like that. In Jesus' name, amen.